Hey hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to talk about Sarah Ahmed's The Promise of Happiness. But before jumping into that, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy, or on Twitter at David Guigno. And if you're listening to this in podcast form, you can find it on YouTube, where I sometimes release videos. And if you're listening to this on in YouTube form, you'd be able to find it in podcast form anywhere where you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads. Now, to help me out, if you're doing that on Apple Podcasts, be sure to like, uh, share, uh, subscribe if you have those options. But certainly leave five stars and leave reviews, which I read, which, yeah, helps me keep in touch with you somewhat, at least in a one-way direction. And the same goes with YouTube like, share, subscribe, tell your friends, who knows, they might get a kick out of this. And if you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. But yeah, I don't want to waste any more of your time with that. Let's jump into Ahmed's The Promise of Happiness. And it, like many books, starts with an introduction titled, Why Happiness? Why Now? So using some key philosophical voices in the history of philosophy, and she goes through many throughout this book. Now, I'm not going to present every single one that she does because that would take forever, but some of the figures that come up are Spinoza, John Locke, uh, Nietzsche, um, Schopenhauer, I believe, at one point too, a number of key uh, philosophical voices that she uses to really discuss this thing called happiness. Now, in addition to them, throughout the course of the book, she makes reference to a lot of cultural artifacts, including film, short stories, um, and novels, including The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, and then other short stories. She discusses the films Bend It Like Beckham, uh, other films like um, Children of Men, The Island, and other stories like Brave New World. Now, I will be making kind of really brief mentions of those because uh, it would take too long for me to give a very proper summary of them to explain what exactly Ahmed is pointing out in them. Now, the reason for that, and it, it really the onus falls on me here, is to try to find a steady balance between giving us what Ahmed is communicating to us while still remaining truthful to her text. But it's difficult to do that because it would require me to present all these other <laughs> films and and, and uh, books and, and short stories that would just take too long. So I'm just putting that out there in case anyone had already read this in the past and you're like, oh, well, you didn't really talk about Bend It Like Beckham all that much. And it's just for the sake of brevity and it's for the sake of clarity and for me to be as concise as I can. So that was a long digression. I apologize for that. But anyways, let's jump back into it here. Just uses all of these kind of philosophical voices, some of which I've already mentioned, to point to this concern for happiness and how in the history of philosophy, there has been a very strong concern for happiness going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, of course, where happiness was figured as the highest good. That is, once we've attained happiness or we treat happiness as an end, then we know what we must do in order to attain this happiness, which will give us fulfillment. Now, despite that, there are quite a few inconsistencies, quite a few disagreements in the history of philosophy as to what happiness actually is or what actually causes it. And to be quite frank and to be really put uh, Ahmed's text into a very, a very narrow scope, the problem is that for everyone, happiness is different. The things that will cause happiness will be different and what it looks like will be different. 
which troubles any easy discovery of what it is. So instead of going down that route, Ahmed instead asks, what does happiness do? That is, in what frame of mind and what, as well as what social setting, what kind of economy of effects does happiness exist in and what function does it serve within that economy of effects? So specifically, she asks, how happiness is imagined as being what follows being a certain kind of being, which might seem strange, but she is wondering about why certain actions are associated with happiness and therefore why certain people are associated with attaining happiness. And as she will come to say, this is often foreclosed to people that do not fit within the normative framework be they racial or sexual gender minorities, that do not abide by the dominant narrative, so to speak. Now, as much as she credits many of these early philosophers who go back many centuries and millennia for really presenting us with this question of happiness, she says that she finds her real kind of fulfillment, her real kind of joy with this question, with the ways in which BIPOC people have called attention to the mobilization of an idea of happiness in order to maintain the status quo. So to put a rather regrettable term out there, there have been certain ideas propagated by, for example, the massive company Disney of an idea called the happy slave that she evokes here. Or there's the idea of the happy housewife which is an oxymoron. Of course, to be a slave means that you are, uh, you are denied the possibility for happiness. Yet these two terms are put together in order for people to believe that they're happy or to believe that there's something good to be found within enslavement, which is obviously cannot happen. But why this concern with happiness? Why, why is she writing this book? Well, in a sense, and this goes to the title of the introduction, Why Happiness, Why Now? In a sense, she's speaking against pop psychology. So I'm sure that many of you have heard that uh, at, at least some voice talking about, you know, the positive effects of happiness or the power of happiness or positivity or joy so that you can get what you want. How many motivational speakers use these tropes, these ideas you know, so that they can make more money by trying to convince people that there's an easy roadmap to both happiness and success. But there is a cultural uh, turn that is a certain emphasis upon happiness that wasn't always the case. And of course, Ahmed is very aware of the fact that happiness isn't necessarily on the rise. It's a very difficult thing to measure, but it's hard to say that, you know, we've been getting happier as a society. In fact, it seems like the opposite has been the case. So this concern with happiness or this obsession with happiness is certainly suspicious to Ahmed. Now, despite this, despite the fact that happiness probably hasn't been increasing, there are still efforts in what is called the science of happiness, the study of happiness, to try and make sense of happiness, whether it's in increasing or decreasing through like polls or surveys which is a very interesting phenomenon because it begs the question, how do you actually testify to your happiness? How do you actually communicate through a poll or a survey that you are in fact happy? Because a state of happiness requires a great deal of reflection and it is one that can't necessarily be reduced to a poll or a survey. 
And this instead attests to the, I guess, the dominance of a certain mode of social scientific research that tries to find the easiest possible way to explain an event rather than to actually get at the, the heart of it, which would require a lot more than just polls or surveys. And especially so as cultural studies and psychoanalysis has shown us, people don't often say what is true to them. People say what is true to their immediate self, their kind of ego ego self, their egotistical self, but not what is true to them as themselves, which is a very difficult thing to actually come to terms with and to actually understand. Where if you were to ask someone why they like something, let's say someone liked a certain food, for example, they were to claim that it gave them joy. If you were to press them on that and say, why, 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 eventually you'll get to the point where they'll just say, just because. It's just, it's just the way it is. Like, I, I just like it. Almost as though our happiness is produced not by any kind of attainment of fulfillment, but it's almost like something that just happens. Like we are victims, in a sense, to happiness happening to us, which makes it all the more difficult to make sense of these efforts to understand happiness on a mass scale. Understand happiness as something that is, is actually increasing or decreasing for that matter. This, of course, hasn't stopped such polls and surveys being done that have shown that, for example, something like marriage is most likely to make people happy. And we hear this a lot in pop psychology. You know, insert your um, pop psychologist here who talks about how you have to get married and then everything will just fall into place or you need to have the 2.3 kids and everything will fall into place or you need to have the white picket fence and everything will fall into place when it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because many of the people that respond to these polls, many of the people that engage in such studies are the ones that grew up being told time and time again that these were the things you had to do to become happy. Now, by extension, Ahmed says that these things aren't just associated with a kind of happiness that is in their capacity to make you happy. They then become associated with something that is good. And that fuels not only your individual kind of positive response to it, which we're going to interrogate as we go on, but let's just say for now, you have an individual response to something, a certain stimulus, the attainment of something that makes you happy. But then the fact of that does not necessarily mean that you're going to keep, you're going to spread that idea. It's with the attachment of the idea of goodness that you come to say, oh, well, I have to, of course, I have to train my children to believe the same thing as well because it's been so fulfilling it's been so wonderful for me of course that brackets off how these things that are associated with happiness are only given that meaning or given that potential with the exclusion of other opportunities other possibilities so it is self-fulfilling in that way where the dominant power structure comes to say you have to do these things in order to be happy and then those things happen and they feel good because every other institution is lined up in such a way as to benefit those people that then through the fact that their lives become easier their lives become more uh, recognized in the face of these dominant structures these dominant institutions they then associate that with a kind of happiness now with this all being said it would be totally erroneous to come out of this thinking like, oh, I can't attain happiness from having the 2.3 kids or the white picket fence or the house. 
Absolutely not. If that is what makes you happy, that's what makes you happy. But rather, Ahmed is curious about the way in which happiness en masse, on a, on a wide scale, is framed and associated with, or a term she uses in the cultural politics of emotion, one of her other texts, how the term happiness, the idea of happiness comes to stick to certain objects, comes to be inextricably linked to it or to them. Now, earlier I'd said we experience this happiness individually, but of course, when it happens on such a wide scale, we have to recognize the kind of group or the kind of uh, communal impetus behind the attainment of certain things to attain happiness. And that is because if it is indeed political and cultural, that is the attainment of happiness, then it, then it is correlated not only with things that are going to make you individually happy, but things that are going to make the community happy. And so there is the possibility for a sort of group formation to form around that. And people come together around their mutual attachment to certain things, to certain actions like marriage, for instance, around which people can cohere an identity that marriage will give them or promise to give them the goods. And with this comes a degree of pressure, because if you then refuse marriage, for example, uh, and I'm, I'm picking on marriage a bit here, but let's roll with it. If you refuse marriage, then it's not just as though you are, in the eyes of your community, refusing happiness for yourself. You are, in a sense, refusing happiness for the community. And I'm sure many people can relate if they refuse to, let's say, have kids. They refuse to uh, get married, for example. How their family has a very strong reaction to that. Like, oh, how could you do this to me? Might be one way that it is framed. How can you uh, do this to us? How can you not participate in this, this ritual? When that, or so that reveals for Ahmed that happiness isn't just about attaining individual fulfillment. In fact, there's a kind of obligation to happiness in that happiness is associated with certain institutions, with certain actions that maintain the status, the kind of coherence, the, the kind of connectedness of the community in which you are a part, or of which you are a part, I should say. So people who refuse to comply or who simply cannot comply with these dominant institutions are then seen as an aberration or as bringing unhappiness upon themselves, or they're seen as being maybe backwards or too strict, or one of the terms that'll come up, they're, be, they're just being like a feminist killjoy or just a killjoy period. So through, throughout the course of this book, she's going to ask who is excluded from the project of happiness? Who is given the privilege to have happiness in this world? And her goal is to proffer up this idea of the killjoy, someone who kills happiness, to be quite blunt about it, because that is how we open up possibility. It is when we begin to question what objects and what actions are associated with happiness that we can open up the door for newness, for possibility. Now, with that being said, there is a difficult tension that runs throughout the course of this book, where on the one hand, it seems like happiness is always already implicated within the dominant structure. That is, happiness is always already associated with certain institutions, with certain mind frames, with certain uh, kind of group interests, and so on. But at the same time, 
Ahmed is trying to proffer up an, an idea of queer happiness, for example, or a kind of undoing of the way that happiness is currently framed in order to welcome different forms of happiness. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because at times it seems like Ahmed wants to get rid of the project of happiness altogether. But at other times, she recognizes that it, happiness is almost all we have in this world, where we need to find these moments for ourselves in this um, hyper-masculine, global, globally capitalized world in which we have to find kind of room for ourselves. So there's that tension here, and it'll come, it'll play itself out throughout the course of the book. But that propels us here into chapter one, titled Happy Objects. So when we describe something as making us happy, uh, that is like an object, like the phone that I would get at Christmas or whatever, it makes us happy. What we are saying then is happiness is something that is outside of us. Happiness is associated with certain objects. Now, because she observes that the object is outside of us and therefore happiness is located outside of us, this opens up what's called or what I'm calling a triptych of possible observations. And a triptych is like a, a three-paged pamphlet, let's say, where you see like three different sides of a, of a pamphlet thing at once. Not just a pamphlet, but any kind of reading, like a book with three pages at once where it's, anyways... It's a fancy, fancy jargon. Anyways, we see these three possibilities unfold here. That is three possible observations for this location of happiness outside of us. So this reveals, firstly, that happiness involves affect, where we are affected by objects, and in return or simultaneously, we affect certain objects by inscribing them with happiness, with an idea of happiness. Secondly, what we reveal is a certain intentionality. That is, we are, find ourselves being happy about something, some object. And thirdly, what we are doing is putting forward a kind of judgment of the object when we associate it with happiness, because we are also then associating it with a kind of goodness. And so when these objects circulate, they operate they, they kind of accrue more and more meaning, more and more value, more and more association with happiness. So it's kind of like a snowball. And as time goes on, they become more and more associated with that possibility, like marriage, for example. Or more generally, the idea of the family, which in, if we take the North American context or European context or many different contexts throughout the world. The idea of the family is kind of inextricably associated with the idea of the nuclear family. And if you happen to not be familiar with that term, what the nuclear family is the idea of there being two parents with children existing in some domicile, some house or apartment or whatever, mostly likely a house, at least that's the, the way that Hollywood has taught us it should be, without living with like extended family or any, any other possible partners in the house for the parents or anything like that. Now, this dynamic is associated with delivering happiness, but that is pretty arbitrary. That is, the association of happiness with that dynamic, because it is a relatively new dynamic for many, many millennia, there was no such thing as nu the nuclear family. People took care of took care, sorry, of other people's children. It you know took a village to raise a raise a child type of thing where everyone worked together. It wasn't just people existing in their little bubble to raise children on their own. So 
This reveals something fundamentally interesting for Ahmed in terms of the etymology, which is the history of the term happiness. Because happiness historically was not associated with certain actions, with certain things per se. Rather, coming from the Old English or Middle English term hap for found in happiness, it was associated with with chance or with being uh, aleatory, which is just another word for chance. So that makes sense when we associate it with objects because we know that these objects aren't innately producers of happiness. That only happens in relation to a human where it is ultimately subjective in how they respond to that institution or that, that object. So it is quite random. It's by chance that we associate certain things with happiness. So to kind of illustrate this, she uses the example or an example from John Locke. And John Locke uses the example of grapes. And he says that he loves grapes. And even when grapes are out of season, like during the winter, I assume, he still loves them, but he doesn't have them. So he loves the promise of the grapes. He knows what the grapes are going to give him when they're finally in season again and he can eat them. But then he says that if he were to undergo some kind of accident, if he were to be in an accident that made it so that he lost his sense of taste, he says then that he would lose his love for grapes because he wouldn't be able to taste them. And this reveals for Ahmed the affective, or we could use another term here, the phenomenological aspect about the relationship, John Locke's relationship to grapes, in that he's saying that there's, he's not saying that there's anything innate about grapes to produce happiness but rather it only happens in relation to a subject perceiving those grapes through taste. And this leads her to write that happiness is an orientation toward the objects we come into contact with. We move toward and away from objects through how we are affected by them. And of course, once we come to terms with this, we recognize that happiness is determined within a social setting, within a social dynamic. So she provides the, the example of how for so long, and still in very many places across the, uh, across the earth, uh, happy, uh, sorry, homosexuality was viewed as something that was uh, an aberration when it came to human sexual conduct. And so therefore, if anyone actually attained any happiness out of same-sex relationships, they were then expected to repress those happy feelings or told those happy feelings were not in fact true. They were told that they couldn't happen and they would subsequently probably for much of history believe it and just live in total uh, shame of themselves and unhappiness. Now the difficulty with this example that she doesn't really reflect on is that it kind of puts forward the idea that there is a kind of true happiness that in this case uh, a homosexual coupling where someone wants that reveals an innate happiness that somehow transcends the social dynamic in which that person is found as though somehow it's not as though people are just determined by their social setting because there are these kind of innate desires people have. Now the way that that rebuttal could be uh, contrasted or, or refuted is to look back to the case of John Locke where the case of grapes is not that it, John Locke is taught that he likes grapes. I mean, it just happens to be appealing, appeasing to his palate just in the same way as same-sex relationships are just naturally appealing to that person. and doesn't mean anything in terms of happiness per se.
as a kind of social uh, construct, it reveals that there are these, you know, these biological uh, directions, these kind of biological drives or motivations behind our attainment or our striving for happiness that we can't, we can't ignore that either. It's not as though it's just all like socially determined and that's it. That would be totally ironic. And it would show that uh, it wouldn't explain how people always seem to be able to deviate from the norm or want to deviate from the norm if it was just determined socially. So being turned toward an object, toward a type of relation, toward a type of action means not only you're being turned towards that, but as I think I've already made clear enough, it's being turned towards a certain community as well, towards a series of objects, toward a series of possible relationships and actions around which or that are found or that gravitate alongside or around that object that is associated with happiness. So for example, in the case of marriage that is associated with happiness, then comes the idea of the nuclear family. Then comes the idea of having the two cars in the garage. Then comes the idea of earning a certain income. Then comes the idea of, or not, I don't mean then as though it happens chronologically like that, but all of these things kind of gravitate around one another. But this reveals something fundamentally interesting about this reality about happiness in that we associate a thing with happiness before we even experience it, before our individual selves come in contact with it. We associate happiness with the family or with marriage before we've actually done those things, which is kind of mysterious given that happiness is often framed as that immediate satisfaction with a thing, not necessarily a thing that hasn't happened yet. So the promise of happiness that is associating certain things with happiness is almost as potent as the realization of happiness. And it is because of this that something like disappointment is very possible and very likely because we're told from a young age that certain things are going to make us happy. That is, we build them up and build them up and build them up and we have the promise of happiness. And then once we've attained it, we might feel empty. It might not deliver the thing that we expected. And so we are left with a state of absence. And that might actually motivate us never attaining that thing or never actually realizing or coming in contact with the thing that was promised to make us happy because we're almost scared that the truth will be revealed that the thing is not going to deliver for us. And this is, comes out of the psychoanalytic work of uh, you know, Lacan, Zizek, that we would almost prefer not to realize happiness because there's more or it's safer to engage only with the promise of that happiness. Now, thus far, we've been talking about happiness almost as though it's this blanket term that encompasses all possible things within a certain social setting. So for all people, we attach the same meaning to the same things in terms of happiness. But Ahmed just kind of says it that way to lay the groundwork. And then she pulls the rug out from under us to say like, well, we have to acknowledge that for different people in different settings, belonging to different classes, genders, races, happiness might be framed differently. But she hones in on the idea of class and that people in the upper classes have or believe themselves to have a more pure understanding of happiness than the lower ones. And this goes all the way back to like Aristotle. So we get this kind of 
paraphrase of what Aristotle was on about, and that is that for Ahmed, a happy life, a good life, hence involves the regulation of desire. It is not simply that we desire happiness, but that happiness is imagined as what you get in return for desiring well. So there is, in this case, and we get this in Aristotle, a distinction between proper and improper happiness, or proper and improper desire. So kind of immediate bodily uh, satisfactions are not considered desirable, truly desirable, that is for Aristotle. They won't actually lead to virtue, being one of his kind of key terms. Whereas more contemplative, contemplative, that is a thinking subject, a rational subject, will be more open to the right kind of happiness and the right kind of desire. So let's think about this in terms of class for a second, where the lower classes who have to, essentially they live from hand to mouth, from paycheck to paycheck, experience the world more immediately for, in a very, to be very general about it, in that they have to just live for the moment because there's no promise of the future. Whereas people who have a great deal of it, disposable income, have job security and all that, have the capacity to put their immediate needs to the side because they have all those things guaranteed. And then they can think about more, what I will just kind of brazenly say, more virtuous things, things that are more aligned with the dominant cultural understanding about what a meaningful life is so they can contemplate their own life. They can contemplate maybe philosophy or they can indulge in various musical interests, you know, what, what have you, things that are only culturally associated with a kind of higher mode of being that isn't so pedestrian or isn't so basic. Now, it still cuts across both are certain interests, certain beliefs in certain institutions, like the family, like marriage, for example. And there are more, of course. Now, when people refuse or are incapable of abiding by that, then certain punitive mechanisms, certain uh, punitive institutions kind of rear their heads or perk their ears at the sight of someone failing to abide by these dominant structures, and they step in to realign or correct them. And that puts us here into chapter two that is titled Feminist Killjoys, who are, in some sense, one of these figures that do not abide by the dominant framework. So she starts at this chapter by talking about Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, in which she argues that the key to women's happiness is to emancipate themselves from the household. Now, this is an idea that obviously relates to uh, this wave, the second wave feminism, sorry, in which women reviewed or women regarded themselves as being subjugated to male authority in the household. So they were viewed as being only housewives. And so part of the resistance of second wave feminism was to oppose that framing of women as only housewives or as only mothers so that they could engage in their own quest for capital, their own accumulation of capital. They can engage in their own projects to become uh, military generals, to become CEOs, and then equality will be attained. So happiness was foreclosed to women 
for Betty Friedan because they were constructed in relationship to men and kind of framed as being subjugated or being made subjugated to men. Now, Ahmed is exceptionally suspicious about this because she asks, who are these women that Friedan is talking about? Friedan, Friedan, I don't know how to properly pronounce it. Who are these women that Friedan is talking about? For the most part, they are upper-class white women, where Friedan doesn't seem to reflect on the fact that if there is this exodus of women from their homes, that it'll often be brown and black women that are going to pick up the pieces in the homes, where they will be hired as cheap labor to then keep the home going. Now, Ahmed doesn't make this counterpoint to say that women should stay in the homes. Like, absolutely not. She's instead suspicious of this attachment of happiness to this movement of women from the home. Because, as we've already pointed out, happiness does not exist in isolation from a certain social dynamic. So this allowance of happiness to these white upper-class women was contingent upon the proportionate, yet in inverse proportional unhappiness of women, or inverse proportional happiness of brown and black women in the same measure, because they are going to have to pick up the pieces. So upon whose backs is happiness allowed? Who suffers when happiness is attained? Now, on the flip side, of course, you had those reactionary women who were like, no, I want to stay in the home because I want to like raise my children, which is absolutely fine. Like, There's nothing wrong with that. But Ahmed is curious or suspicious about both because they are both, they both have a kind of reactionary, angry response to what would then be, you know, kind of broadly called third wave feminism, because that feminism was viewed as just muddying the waters or kind of uh, refusing women to be happy, where third wave feminists were both calling attention to women just staying in the home all the time, and women learning how to operate drones and tanks, because these obviously are both ways in which the dominant system keeps going, most often at the expense of brown and black women. So in the one case, we have women just existing within the capitalist uh, military-industrial complex world that keeps the basic system, the very complex, I should say, system of capitalist interest rolling, while the other one that is women staying in the homes, keeps the gendered dynamics going. So she is here curious about the way that feminists are framed as killjoys because they are, you know, disturbing women in either of these positions. So feminists are viewed as people that take away the possibility for joy. Now to think about this more closely, she uses an example, or she uses one of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's stories, Emile, that centered on the experiences of a young orphan named Emile, uh, who with the proper education, who with the proper upbringing, despite him being an orphan, attains virtue and happiness. Now, in a later book, we are introduced to Emile's wife named Sophie, who too, apparently, according to Husso, attained a good or was had a good upbringing and had a good education. But the way in which she was given this education was not for her to be virtuous in the same sense as Emile, that is to be uh, a successful 
uh, business person, I think, or to be just a successful person in life. It was instead for her to be a good housewife. So for all intents and purposes, she was properly socialized. She should have every right to the happiness that she feels. That is because she followed the dominant script and became a housewife. So Emil's happiness was attained by his fulfilling a kind of virtuous life. Whereas Sophie's happiness is attained by her facilitating Emil's happiness. Because she's preparing all his meals, uh, raising children, keeping the house clean, probably doing other clerical work for Emil while he can do the more meaningful stuff. So it is not just that certain objects are associated with happiness and it's like everyone has a kind of neutral possibility of attaining that. Happiness is also predicated upon the formation of certain subjects as, uh, I guess, proxies or as people that are just meant to serve other people so that they can attain happiness. In this case, all that Sophie was brought up for was to make her husband's life good. So women who refuse Sophie's path in life, that is, they refuse to just abide by this dominant script, are constructed as feminists, which is a term that is kind of is stuck to an idea of unhappiness, that is being a killjoy, refusing to allow happiness to happen. Or they're, refu they're viewed, sorry, they're viewed as kind of foreclosing the possibility for their own happiness, where it's not just like they're stopping other people from being happy. They are seen as, you know, stopping them from being themselves happy. But ironically, for these women who refuse to abide by this script, this is exactly what makes them happy because they don't have to do these gendered things that are super alienating and to invoke studies and polls and surveys, you know, because we take those as good measurements. Women who do not necessarily involve themselves within the script, that is having the 2.3 kids and having a husband, if that's the, the, if that's the life that they happen to choose, tend to live more fulfilling lives, according to polls and surveys. But they are still associated with bringing unhappiness upon themselves, or they're viewed as being killjoys or troublemakers. But as I mentioned earlier, and as Ahmed mentioned earlier, it is not as though when you disrupt the project of happiness, you are only disrupting your own happiness. Or if you call out that racist uncle at the dinner table that you're disrupting their happiness for being uh, racist, when you refuse to be happy, when you refuse the project of happiness, then you are rallying, you are struggling against the very community at large, the, very, the social fabric in which you find yourselves. So then people have a kind of immediate gut reaction to that to defend because they feel themselves to be under attack, which is a kind of ab reaction in order to maintain the system at hand. So for example, the, uh, the example that Ahmed illustrates is sitting at the dinner table, let's say Thanksgiving dinner, and you have that one aunt or uncle who happens to be saying racist things, and you call them out on it. You might be constructed as this feminist killjoy. Maybe not in those terms, but you're seen as being a killjoy. You're seen as being someone that's taking the life out of the party, maybe, just bringing your politics into it. When Ahmed asks, is it that this person is killing happiness? Or is it the racism that they're calling out that is actually killing the happiness? But we, we are normalized to that kind of 
unhappiness or to that kill joy. The person who is racist closing off happiness to, in most cases, brown and black people, is that the person that is killing happiness? I would like to think that, in fact, it is. That is the person. That is the culprit, not the person calling it out. Yet, this is how the dominant framework works in that the privileged position, the privileged mind frame, the privileged uh, voice can say what they want with transparency. That is what they say is not viewed as being bad just because it folds in so well with the dominant script. So even though calling out racism is the morally correct thing to do, if I can be so blunt, it is still framed as being the bad thing where you are seen as being the shit disturber or the troublemaker. And so then there is an expectation, not only on the part of these feminist killjoys broadly, but also upon just generally marginalized people uh, like like brown and black women who are expected to perform a kind of ultra happiness where this trope of the angry black woman is used to illustrate these women as being kind of uncontrollable and on, on the verge of exploding. And so to curb that, they have to perform extra happy, they have to be like extra happy, extra careful, so as not to set off or to offend the delicate sensibilities of the, you know, the dominant racial class that they, uh, they associate with or might, might be around. Racial class, God, that's and the dominant race, white people that they are, might be around and have to uh, coddle by being extra happy. So one of the projects of feminism is to challenge happiness as it is normatively constructed in order to expand possibilities. Because if we are satisfied culturally with certain actions, with certain beliefs as being the producers of happiness, then we are foreclosing the possibility to realize happiness in other ways. And this plays out in any number of ways, where if we take the distinction, and she uses some examples to illustrate this, between uh, stories told by white women about empowerment versus, in some cases, black women about empowerment. What we see is that empowerment for white women is often framed as a leaving of the family. You must leave the family in order to be happy. And Ahmed's not passing any judgment on that. Like, that, that would be a good thing. And you have to do that. In order to do that, you kind of have to be unsympathetic about it. Because otherwise, you'll just return into that fold, into those gender dynamics. Now, in the case of black and brown women, often empowerment is associated with a return to the family. And this is a product of the fact that historically, uh, black and brown women were deliberately taken from their families. Or in the case of indigenous women, to use a, a specific example in Canada, the way that the law was framed, I think still is framed in Canada, was that if an indigenous woman happened to marry, marry a non-indigenous man, she would then lose her status as an indigenous person. So there are all these mechanisms in place that were meant for brown and black women to lose their status, to lose their relationship with their families. And this happens through intergenerational trauma and so on and so forth. All of these kind of uh, neo-imperialist strategies to keep the project of European whiteness going. So this example really illustrates the way that, you know, happiness for different people is different. And it is only when we acknowledge that, then we can begin to challenge happiness 
as being associated with certain actions. Now, of course, the dominant framework, being mostly generally white upper class, tries to impose certain uh, beliefs about happiness onto marginalized people. So she uses the example here of The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, in which a young black girl, and there's, there's a lot to this story and I can't go into all the details about it because that would take too long, but a young black girl wishes that she had blue eyes, essentially fitting with the dominant uh, beauty standard that permeates, that is being having blonde hair and blue eyes. And she yearns to be like this as she's going through these traumatic events. She, she always yearns to be this other person. And there's nothing natural about preferring that, that uh, looking that way. It is instead only brought upon by the powerful. So that will propel us here into chapter three, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap th this up here and we'll continue next time from chapter three titled Unhappy Queers. So if, you know, thank you for listening this far. If you have any uh, questions or anything, leave a comment. If you like what I did, leave a like or five stars wherever you're listening to it in, in podcast form. And if you think I did anything wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, I don't have the time to respond to every comment, but I, I do try to read them all. And if there are any like pressing ones, I will, I will definitely put in the time to respond or deal with uh, you directly. But yeah, thanks a lot for listening and I'll catch you next time. Take care.